This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. All right, I want to see if um, y'all are ready tonight. So grace and peace, y'all doing all right? We're going to try one more time. Grace and peace, y'all doing all right? That's right. So um, I am Jonah. We talked about my dream job of leading RUF on the campus of Winston State, Winston-Salem State University, man. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. We're continuing tonight, though, to look into the life of David here in chapter 28. Um, ben came to campus um, a, a week ago with me on uh, the prayer walk on the campus with Shadia and I and the kids. And I told him, I said, bro, you gave me the strangest scripture to preach. What in the world? So we, we are, by the grace of God, going to work this out tonight. But let's pray. <laughs> oh, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet God, in your sovereignty, you, you hear our prayers. And what a privilege it is tonight, God, to open your word with my friends. We ask that you would graciously give us hearts and minds to receive your word. Would you tear down the barriers of sin and the burdens of our life that distract us, that tonight we would only see you? And would you decrease Jonah tonight that you might increase? And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The life of David begins with this ongoing contrast between David and this king who is currently reigning named Samuel. Saul is called to be king in 1 Samuel 9, where you think this brother was called to be king because he was a great military leader or because he was really wise. But now in verse 2, it says that he was uh, qualified because he was tall and finer than any of the other brothers in Israel. 
this brother is being picked to be king like something off The Bachelor. Somebody wanted to hand this brother a rose. David, on the other hand, is this king that is found when he was a kid, though. Samuel comes looking for this new king that God had ultimately chosen. But when he meets David's dad, uh, his daddy doesn't even really think much of David himself. They even include him among his sons. David is this afterthought. He's like, yeah, I got another boy, but I don't know if he's the one you're looking for. As a matter of fact, I just keep him out tending to my sheep. And when Samuel meets David, he recognizes him as the one truly called as the king of Israel. Needless to say then that David and Saul had a pretty complicated relationship. And when I study, the teach or the preach, I like to be sure that I ask some really good questions. One of the questions I asked in this particular text is, would, I, would you really have considered David and Saul ever to be friends? Uh, just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 18 and 11, I think I probably got a solid answer. At least for me, I would at this point know whether or not uh, we were friends. The scripture there reads, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And I know you're probably wondering, how in the world could this show if David and Saul were friends? And if you're asking that question, I'm glad you asked, because um, I, I see this like this. Uh, David is jamming on his instrument. We know he liked to dance a little bit. And this spear comes at him the first time. Uh, now, this first time, I can see maybe Saul wanted to laugh it off and say, hey, I just wanted to see that you're aware. They say you're a great military man. I'm, I'm just checking your skills out. I don't know about you, but when that spear would have came across my head the second time, I know this brother is not my friend. As a matter of fact, when that second spear came, I'm sure I'd probably think, like my grandmother used to say, that there'd be some smoke in the city. David in the Psalms would always talk about lifting some hands, and I'm sure there would have been some hands lifted. But that's Jonah. Saul, though, had this unique privilege of being called as the king of God's chosen people. Yet the life of Saul turns out to be more like a Shakespearean tragedy. Time after time, Saul chooses not to trust God. His life is intended for us here in the scriptures to be a mirror for us, to acknowledge the desperate need of God. Saul's story is one having gained the favor of God yet in rebellion to him, loses it. Know tonight our sin offends the one true righteous and holy God. Yet we have in Christ been given 
a substitute who offers us freely the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In 1 Samuel 28 and 3, it reads, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned him and buried him in Ramah, his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The author of Samuel here is setting the tone for what it is we're approaching tonight. Note that both things to which the author mentions had already taken place. So no, it's it's not like Samuel has just died, but rather the text is suggesting that Samuel has been gone for some time. And Saul ridding the land of mediums and necromancers is something that he probably achieved early in his reign. The death of Samuel, though, only mentioned here briefly, seemingly follows this biblical pattern in which the men live full lives that are narrated at length only to be observed in death by obscurity. To suggest that we are to live our full lives in faithfulness to God only to die and be forgotten. To rid the land of mediums and necromancers is actually one of the few things that the scriptures mentioned that Saul actually did that he should have done. The scriptures continually warned against them. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against them and the person will be cut off from among his people. Leviticus 20 and 6. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Leviticus 20 and 7. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord, your God, is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For the nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 14. Mediums and necromancers were not something in common of the time. In fact, they were pretty widespread in the ancient Near East. At the very least, it appears that Saul is trying to fix a problem in the land that actually just continues to plague Israel monarchically, even for kings in the future. So Saul is, yes, trying to do the right thing, but we know that Saul's motives are not always pure. Verse 4 then reads that the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunan. And Samuel gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. The action of what takes place here in verse 4 chronologically doesn't take place until chapter 29. But if you were to see on a map, uh, what you would see is the settling of the Philistines in the north. And so Saul and his men go and settle on the other side opposite of them. Israel and the Philistines were perennial enemies. And the word that the author uses here to describe the Philistines 
we would actually today translate to mean immigrant. So these brothers are not coming just to fight and leave. The author wants us to know that these brothers are coming and wanting to take over. So war between these longtime enemies was imminent. And as we can see in verse 5, the Saul is scared. Saul knew these brothers well, and in every instance, somehow manages to cause Saul to do something crazy. In 1 Samuel 13 is the story of Samuel, at least temporarily defeating the Philistines. But Saul is impatient and in, in rebellion offers a sacrifice, clearly being told not to. In chapter 17, we see the story of David and Goliath. And Saul, as a result, just grows jealous, especially after hearing people singing of David's greater military accomplishments. Look then at verse 6 as it reads, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Nothing at this point was working for Saul. Nothing was going right. No prayer, none of the brothers that Saul hung out could help him or tell him what to do. Know that dreams, the Urim and the prophets, though, at this point were all considered acceptable means of seeking God. Dreams we see as a form of revelation frequently in the scriptures. Jacob in Genesis 28 dreams of a ladder that reaches into heaven. Joseph in Genesis 37 dreams of his future. Even in Matthew 1 and 20, God uses a dream to prepare Joseph for the birth of Jesus. The Urim, though, is a word that actually means light or to be luminous. In Exodus 28 and 30, the Urim as described as a part of the priest's best fate and used as a reflection of judgment. It is believed to be one of two stones that were used to seek answers from God. The prophets, though, the prophets like Samuel were men who were called by God to speak to the people for God. Yet no matter what, no answer came because Saul had ultimately been rejected by God. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, Samuel tells Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul was facing wartime and had sinned himself into silence from God. The prophet Isaiah, though he didn't come until a little bit later, described this kind of silence. He said, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. And you're frightened. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness in Isaiah 59. 
Saul's fear was paralyzing and dreadful, and I'm sure it caused them often to tremble. And we, we talked about this contrast between David and Saul, and notice here is a clear example of this. Saul, in the face of his enemy that he seemed defeated time and time again, stood frightened, and yet David, in the face of the enemy, stood boldly in confidence of his God. Know here that I I love the scriptures. I talk often about its literary beauty. And I want you to see that here as the verbs used in this verse are written in the past perfect tense. Which means that the action that is taking place is something that has already happened. So in God not speaking to Saul, uh, he's not only not speaking to Saul, but it means that God has already made up in his mind that he's not going to. Someone once said that one of the greatest costs of sin, perhaps the greatest, is broken communication with the Lord. In Psalm 66, 18, it says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. God, who is in his very nature a communicator, God spoke the world into existence. In Genesis 3, it says that Adam and Eve uh, could hear the voice of God from the garden. And Saul hears absolutely nothing. So Saul goes, he asks his servants, he says, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. It is at this point as if Saul was determined that he was going to hear from God whether God wanted to speak to him or not. I can't help but ask, though, when we're desperate, who are we turning to for answers? The commentators describe Saul here as willfully turning to wickedness. Verses 8 through 11 says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Saul's disguise and nighttime travel are only a reflection that he knows that his actions were wrong. This is the blatant absolution of sin. As Saul engages the witch at Endor, she reminds him of his own work to remove the mediums and necromancers from the land. Saul had turned from the wisdom of God to seek counsel from among the wicked. And though she knew the penalty for what she would do would be death, she trusts Saul's vow of protection. And in verse 11, she brings up from the grave the prophet Samuel. In case you hadn't noticed yet, uh, this is the place where it starts to get a bit strange. 
My brother John Bourgeois notes that it's here in the modern West that we have trouble with supernatural realities. That we must equate all things to natural scientific causes. So we equate the root cause of violence and crime, greed, racism, and cruelty against others to natural explanations of cause and effect. We associate them with problematic psychological factors. So uh, how we are raised or educated or sociological issues like bad neighborhoods and socioeconomic statuses. Andrew Del Blanco, an intellectual scholar at Columbia in the book, The Death of Satan, even though he describes himself as a secular liberal writes, in the first line of the book, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And he goes on to write, we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. The reason we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms like dysfunction or pathology. The Bible, though, presents us with a very different reality. The reality of evil, the reality of Satan, the reality of real demonic forces. And though the church today may have grown despondent, it's important to know that the church historically has been adamant in its teachings and warning us to beware of very real evil. Scholar Todd R. Haynes, in his brief biography, on Martin Luther writes of the reformer's constant mention of one he called Poltergeister and spirits that bang around knocking and tapping, especially during those times when we think we're alone. Luther discussed this while hiding from the imperial authorities. Hines goes on to tell the story of Luther going out one day and on the way home he stops to buy a bag of hazelnuts to have later as a snack and after laying down for a nap, Luther said something goes and throws that bag of nuts in his face. Waking him up. And though he searched the room, he found no one. So he lays back down to try to get back to sleep, but he was awakened again and again with the sound of barrel after barrel of beer crashing down the stairs, though the stairwells were completely dry. Hein shares Luther's stories of a man who told of a spirit who appeared over him in his bed one night as a goat with terrible horns, a spirit that would mimic the wails of a child each night at the same time in the same bedroom where a newborn had died, a spirit who ambushed and assaulted a band of monks and often how dead loved ones would appear who could not find rest in the afterlife. Heinz describes Luther as being unable to pass over the reality of ghosts in the scriptures 
often preaching just after Easter, Luke 24, verses 36 through 37, where Jesus suddenly appears, or John 20, where Jesus has the ability to walk through walls. Luther taught, quote, he says, for the sake of the children, we must say a little something about the spirits because the gospel readings mention them. We can chase away the devil in no other way than believing in Christ. So we say, I am baptized, I am a Christian, and whenever we speak Jesus Christ's name with seriousness, the devil flees before the seed of the woman, before Christ. He hears him and knows that he ruined his teeth on him, just as we ruin our teeth in the bite of an apple. So did he in the seed of the woman. So when Luther was hit in the face with a bag of hazelnuts and heard barrels of beer crashing down the stairs, he commended himself to the care of Jesus and shouted Psalms 8 and 6 and laid down and went right back to sleep. And when the spirit appeared over the man's bed, he stood up, grabbed it by the horns, holding fast to his baptism, and threw it to the ground, and it disappeared. And when a grieving mother and father heard the wails of a newborn, they despised and mocked the devil, saying, Devil, what are you doing? Don't you have anything better to do? You are cursed spirit. Go back to where you belong, into the abyss of hell. And when the devil attacked a group of monks, one simply stood up quoting John 1.14, and the devil disappeared. And Hans describes Luther having concluded one thing from this, that where the word of God is, God is. And where God is, the devil has to flee. Now then, in verse 12, it reads, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The woman's cry as she sees Samuel coming to me implies even she was scared of what she could now see. Which means normally, normally, she is as fake as Miss Cleo called me now in the Dion Psychic Network. Or something is happening that even she could not explain. No, this is not demonic or deceptive, but the raising of God's prophet. In verses 13 and 14, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up from the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And maybe it's just me, but I think it's a bit crazy that Saul is the one in this instance trying to calm this lady down. If I'm coming to you to raise up a spirit, I'd at least expect you to be professional 
and know what you're doing, Miss Richard Indoor. This witch is not even good at her witchery. More importantly, though, notice that it is Saul the king who now bows at the feet of Samuel the prophet. Look with me, if you will, at verses 15 through 19. I want to look at those collectively. It reads that then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord, your, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. And therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Let me be quick to express that in the interpretation of what takes place here in these verses is by no means unanimous in thought. Uh, there are those who would suggest that because uh, there's demonic forces being used that you, you couldn't bring about kingdom purposes. So the one speaking here could not be the real Samuel. Uh, I more likely agree with those who would say uh, that this is not the work of demonic influences, but rather God using Samuel, even from the grave, to speak to the pro as the prophet to Saul. I love Samuel's response right from the beginning, though. He asked, uh, why are you disturbing me? And Saul, he is just scared and just goes on rambling. These Philistines, they didn't come. They about to jack me up. And I've been going to my homeboys. They can't help me. The Urim ain't telling me anything. I'm not dreaming about anything. And these prophets stuck on mute. And I can imagine in this moment that in hearing Saul carry on, that Samuel has to know that he simply needs to remind Saul, as he did before he died, that not only has he been rejected by God, but the text says that God has now become his enemy. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You and I, though, yet for the shed blood of Christ are two enemies of God, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5 and 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, 
to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. While we now know that Saul is this brother who has failed time and time again, Samuel points to Saul's failure to defeat the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, God gives Saul this command for the wholesale slaughter of the Amalekites to kill every man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul, Saul, like listen to his homeboys, he thought, "Um, nah, we ain't got to kill this king. We, We can take him back with us. And some of these sheep, man, we can we can eat good with this and these ox, we can take them back and put them to work. As a response in verse 11, it says that God regretted then even making Saul king. We first see the Amalekites in Exodus 17 and 6, where Moses and Joshua first leads the people of Israel to defeat them. And God promises even then that he would blot them out from memory under heaven. I know for many of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, we question how God could do this. Or maybe you just question the reality of a God who could order the wholesale massacre of an entire people. Questions like this are hard. I know people who walk away from the faith because of stories like this to to shun it and say, man, this can't be real. I think R.C. Sproul is right saying that holiness of God is traumatic to us as unholy people. I am convinced, though, that when we see God's judgment on evil, We should both be grieving at the penalty of death, but also filled with the joy of God and his fulfillment of divine justice. In Ezekiel 33, 11, we see that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I'm sure this, too, is the posture that that we should take. But that flight against the Amalekites is a fight for peace and the land promised to the people of God. And the church has honestly struggled with this, seeking only to focus on the great love and compassion of God while shying away from speaking the truth of God's judgment and righteous wrath. I'm sure this is what the author of Hebrews is referencing in chapter 10, writing, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. 
and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Calvin in his Institutes describes God as that dread and terror by which good holy men of old trembled as scripture universally relates. Can I just warn us against dismissing this text as historical narrative because it doesn't fit into our box of what we think justice and righteousness should be? When we care more about the death of the Amalekites, we demean the victory for which Saul had been entrusted by God that he chose to achieve his way. The story of the defeat of the Amalekites is a story not about conquering warriors, but putting to death evil. I know then that it's probably not the news that Saul was hoping for, but it actually, at this point, is the best news that Saul could have possibly received. As Samuel tells him that tomorrow, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. I know there are some scholars who would debate this, but even though Saul has totally messed things up, he was the king of Israel, chosen by God, and God keeps his promises even when we mess this thing up called life. So in verse 20 it reads, When Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. This is the end for Saul. The last place that Saul could think to go for hope was the place that he learned that he was utterly hopeless. God is silent and Saul is in despair. Saul, this tall, proud king, is left only with terror. There is no dream of future hope, no new prophet coming to speak new life to Saul's situation, nothing in the voices of the priest that could console him. There is nothing but silence when the only thing in the world that Saul wanted was to hear something. This is silence from heaven. Silence from the God who has always spoken. The God who can hear and can deliver is completely silent. There's one other time, though, in the scriptures that records this kind of silence. It was a Friday about 2,000 years ago. When Jesus, the Son of God, was hanging on a cross. 
He's been beaten at this point so much that honestly, you could barely even recognize who he was. And they took these huge nails and drove them through his hands and his feet like railroad spikes. On this old rugged cross that had already been stained with the blood of God knows how many men before him. This was the death for criminals. Not the one man who ever lived that was completely sinless. Yet he had some friends that meant more than any of the pain or even death to him. So with a crown of thorns on his head and the stupid sign that somebody thought was funny hanging above his head, he he bears the weight of the sins of humanity. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is crazy, too, because even in this immense suffering, he's still quoting scripture. And the people who are there seeing this, they had to know this. And why would Jesus say this? Because this is the first time and the only time in all of its eternity that he would experience separation from God. Jesus knows this silence from God. Jesus, the son of God, was forsaken and abandoned, deserted and disowned by his father. Jesus became a curse for us. He died for us. But not only that, we know that that after his death, three days later, after being put into a grave, his friends decide to show up. And they find that he's not there. It's not because grave robbers took him, not because his followers wanted to hide his body, but because Jesus is alive. This week on campus, I was hanging out with my boss, talking about this passage. And he said, you, you got to tell them to remember that Saul is a warning for us. And then he said something crazy that completely blew my mind. He said, warnings in scripture are extensions of God's grace to us. Warnings in scripture are extensions of God's grace to us. So why in the world would we have this tragic story of Saul here for us today? Because God has given us grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace.